0: Welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we discuss a range of topics from
1: tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoylis. And I'm George Wyeth. We're both product designers from the University of Sussex. And this is episode 12,
0: Remaking the World. Last episode, we dived into the world of design failures with a selection of stories from the Oscars to Google Glass. Be sure to check out that episode and any of the others that might take your fancy
1: after this. This episode, we're having an open conversation with one of our lecturers, Emeline Brule, all about her areas of expertise, from accessible design to user experience of digital interfaces. So let's get into it. So today we are with our
0: guest lecturer, Emeline. Hello. Hi. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm sure many of our listeners know who you are, but some won't.
2: Sure. Uh, so I'm Emeline Brule. Uh, I'm a designer and I'm a lecturer in product design. Uh, at University of Sussex uh my research is in human computer interaction mostly so uh that intersects with my work I'm teaching but isn't really limited to that um and so I trained as a graphic designer mostly and then by a series of circumstances and sometimes unfortunate events uh I ended up doing a a PhD um I graduated from my master in 2000 and Twelve uh, and I was working at the time um mostly on building websites um like building websites back then was just like you were just doing everything from design to back end um things like user experience or user interface were still very very new, and I was mostly working in digital publishing, and one thing leading uh leading to another I was recruited for a PhD on building accessible technologies for visual input children which I had no expertise in and I think I probably shouldn't have been recruited for that. <laughs> um, but I was there. And so yes I did uh I did my PhD in France. Uh I was building accessible maps, I was like researching um the experiences of schooling of visual input people in France. Apart from that, I've long been working um, in the in like the open source field. Uh, I'm also a Wikipedian. and when I finished my PhD, I interviewed at Sussex, which also was due to chance. Like so a very good friend of mine, Caspiel, sent me the um, sent me the advert, and I was like, "Oh well, I'm going to try." Um, and I interviewed at 30 in the morning,
3: Oh no, <laughs>
2: because of the time zone difference. Yeah. Uh, it still went well enough that they hired me. Uh, they hired me because I spent a lot of times, um, talking about my hacked knitting machine.
3: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, and (laughs) it turned out that I think they, they really liked the, um, can-do approach I had to, like, design and teaching. Um, and of course, like, I think they really wanted to have someone who had more experience in accessibility. But when I asked why they hired me, they said, like, we really like the bit about the digital machine. So, uh, I'm going to wear that as a badge of honor. Um, and so the reason I studied design in the first place is that honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to study. I actually went into more like finance and illustration and then, um, like visual communication and then more typographic design and did like training myself in programming and doing some more uh, digital design and art, uh, project. Um, and yeah, design seemed like a field where you would be doing a bit of everything. Uh, and you would be working with a lot of different people doing lots of different things and helping them giving a shape to their ideas. And, um, yeah, it just seemed like it was a really good thing. Yeah. And I knew accessibility mostly because, um, I was. Doing programming, I was always very concerned about implementing accessibility the right way. Interestingly, the web was more accessible when I started, like 10 years ago, than it is now. Oh, really? Yeah. So Flash was not accessible at all. And 10 years ago, we're still working with Flash often. (laughs) So that part is better. Um, But actually, most websites right now are not accessible at all.
0: I'm imagining a lot of that is due to like kind of pop-ups and ads and all of that kind of thing that get in the way of easy access.
2: Yes. Um, and also the developer development tools that we're using, we used to have to use actual HTML and actual CSS. And now we're just using Javascript everywhere. And without like this very strong knowledge of technical accessibility, like you can't go around it to access a website basically.
0: So you only are able to access a website through the very specific way that someone's determined and if that doesn't fit your needs, then it just doesn't work?
2: Yeah. Um, And then there's there's kind of like the larger definition of of accessibility. JavaScript is um, animations everywhere, for instance, like we got used to things just moving slightly when we scroll past. Um, That's made websites less accessible for people who have uh, trouble with attention. And like every website have become like much larger with time because we've just adding more images and more animations and more, and more everything. Um, and so if you have an older device, it's just going to be a lot less accessible than putting an HTML and CSS page on the web used to be.
1: Yeah. I guess I have kind of noticed that a lot of websites just go really all in on the, just. I guess almost it's almost like the showbiz of their website, rather than actually just what you're trying to use the website for, with just fancy graphics and this moving there and animations and this images switching out. So yeah, I guess I can say it.
2: Yeah, expectations have changed. You're not expecting to see a website like Wikipedia, except if it's Wikipedia anymore. And that's kind of sad because sometimes you don't need anything more than that. But since... The expectations are now these templates that have these moving graphics and, and so on. It just becomes something that you, ha- as a designer, you have to do, even though it's not necessarily um, like the best way to do it. A couple of years ago, there was this movement that started that was called like, Brutalist Design, or um, well, some people call it that. And so the idea that a website would have a Brutalist aesthetic, fewer animations, uh, easier graphics um, more, most maybe more centered on typography that has taken in some parts of the internet, but more generally, like the web is, has become very, um, inaccessible, um, and that isn't helped by, uh, automatic tools. So like these accessibility standards are very definitely difficult to implement. Um, and so some people have started developing automatic tools that make your website accessible, quote, quote, and often they just don't. Mm. So like a lot of companies are just not willing to put the effort in recruiting someone who is an expert in accessibility to make sure that their website is accessible and instead are just using automatic solutions that are not really proven.
0: So do you think that's something that kind of needs to be addressed from like the educational standpoint of when you kind of teach people how to design things well or is it something that needs to be legally required or is it something that the kind of end like devices, so the computer that you're reading websites on should be able to kind of convert into an accessible format. Like, where do you think the effort needs to go?
2: So I think all all strategies are necessary. So first of all, like uh, web accessibility is legally required. Like you can you can sue a company if your website is not accessible, and and some people do. But obviously, uh, it's more difficult if it's uh, a user generated content. So, in the case where it's user generated content, you need the website to both encourage the users to provide captions. Uh, So, for instance, TikTok recently added an auto captioning um, tool. Those have their issues as well, but it definitely helps. Usually, the company will have to help a bit with that. So, that can be tools that try to add captions uh, automatically. um, That could also be designing, for instance, like your phone or your computer to be able to recognize graphic elements uh in a given software and label them for accessibility. There was a paper at the um Kai conference, which I was at by Jeff Bigam and we, we was at Apple and lots of co authors, which uses AI and machine learning to recognize elements in um in a given iPhone app. And level them and they're hoping to transform this into a tool that helps designers and programmers uh, building accessibility in their apps. The problem with placing the responsibility of accessibility on the device makers or or like the app store or whatnot is that the machine won't be able to do everything. Mm. At some point you have to test it with people and so if you take away this work of very technical accessibility entirely, uh, you're not going to foster that expertise. And yeah, and then I think education is, uh, is really important. And usually you can, your standards move all the time and our technologies move, move all the time and our goalposts move all the time. And I think being aware of what's needed, being aware that some users are using the internet differently, being aware that you need to um, make your product accessible from a legal standpoint, is what's really important there.
3: Yeah,
0: absolutely. So I guess, uh, you know, on on that, like, under, having an understanding of accessibility is obviously important for designers. And I guess, are there elements of it that, obviously, you know, you teach us product design, and you teach us a lot about accessibility and incorporating it into things? Um, I guess, what are the kind of, like, foundational elements that you'd say are at least the basics that one should know and consider, and how can people use those better?
2: Right. So, well, I think like the, the very, the very basic in, the, uh, uh, in web are the um, accessibility guidelines. Like the, um, I don't think I've ever said this on, uh, out loud. I always read them or chat about them, <laughs> but the WCAG um, guidelines, which are published by the W3C, cons- which is like the web consortium, basically, which establishes standards uh, for the web. Mm. Um, For product design itself, accessibility has a very long history that you can very easily retrace to the beginning of human factors. Um, And even before people were trying to uh, optimize human activities uh, in the early 20th century. So, making sure in your house, that there is space for wheelchair, for instance, that would be the very basic of accessibility, making sure there's space for wheelchair and that the space is adequate for the kind of use and is something that people like to use. That's where that's the ideal um, of accessibility.
1: Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated topic, isn't it? Cause I guess a lot of the general society is is often overlooks because it generally quite different niches of accessibility requirements, isn't it? So I guess, yeah, a lot of people may try and go, oh, we'll try and implement something for, say, a wheelchair, but maybe that can then impact something which, for someone who's not using a wheelchair, but has another need. So is it...
2: Yeah, I mean, for sure.
1: Is it just a sort of balance?
2: Yeah, so for sure you can't have something that is universally accessible at all times. So if, you, if I take again the example of a wheelchair, uh, if you're making something accessible to wheelchair, usually you're going to have to increase surface. If you increase surface, someone who um, has fatigue, for instance, or like chronic illnesses, might have, or use scratches instead of a wheelchair and doesn't want to use a wheelchair for a variety of reasons, you make their lives more difficult. But it, we hmm. still can't not like we still can't make it accessible to wheelchair users, Um, and you're always going to have to make trade-offs, and there's always going to be people who are disadvantaged um, by these trade-offs. And the other side of technical standards for accessibility is that if you make, the more complicated they get, the less they are likely to be implemented. Because the more complicated they get, first of all, the more they might create conflict, but also, um, you, it's like easier to, to miss one. So you're always going to try and find, uh, the best balance that you can so that the, the largest amount of people are able to, for instance, access a space autonomously. And then when things don't work, you can add, like, for instance, some human help, or, like, another kind of um, of structure. Well, I'm actually uh, finishing writing up a, a study on how the general population perceives accessible housing. And one um, of the things I found is that uh, they really don't like it <laughs> mm. to the extent that they're often making the space inaccessible. And they might not realize that they're making the space inaccessible, but it's things like um, the, the, the accessible countertop is actually not accessible if you have back problems, cause it's too low because it's supposed to accommodate wheelchair users. And so, or like they find, they think that some rooms are too large and they're losing space in other, uh, in other areas of their house where they want more space. And you're never going to be able to address that, but it's not going to be easy to address. There are some designs that are better than others, uh, but we're constantly tinkering mm. around like physical and digital accessibility to make things better for the largest, um, yeah, the largest categories of people.
0: So there's obviously like a lot of things that are very easy to miss with accessibility. Uh, But of course there are also elements where someone who has an accessibility need probably wants it to just be available as opposed to having to request it, for example, or, you know, take extra steps to obtain it. It's quite important that it's there and just as easy as anyone else. So I guess on that, are there, do you have any kind of good examples or people or like goals to talk about who, are, you know, really doing it right and could be used as inspiration for designers to look towards.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so for sure, like the primary goal should be autonomy. And then when you can't, again, because like the world is not infinitely flexible, um, you uh, add some helps and like, for instance, a very bad example would be, the Bro- uh, I think it's a Brooklyn library, uh, which is built around these massive stairs and the stairs are beautiful. Like this is a really, really beautiful building. Um, but some levels are not accessible to wheelchair users. And they said, right, this is accessible because they can ask a librarian to go fetch a book mm. in, the, yeah. <laughs> in the levels that are not accessible to wheelchair users. A very good example on the other hand would be the Edge Roberts campus, uh, which is in Berkeley, which is one of the uh, birthplace of the American disability rights movements, and it's built around a massive uh, ramp. That goes all around the building. And it's, it's really quite beautiful. Um, and it's very, very uh, usable for a wide range of people. I mean, uh, the question of can every building have like a massive ramp <laughs> going around? Mm-hmm.
0: The- I'm just looking at a picture of it now. It looks very much like the Guggenheim to some extent.
2: Yeah, so some people are, uh, some people refer to Guggenheim as well. I, the Adrobot campus was built for accessibility, whereas the Guggenheim wasn't mm. and the uh, slope at the Guggenheim, I would say is too, uh, I think it's still within accessibility norms, but it's definitely uh, stronger than at the Ed Roberts campus. Yeah.
0: I was going to say I've, I've been there um, and it's really quite steep. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You, you, you feel it. You definitely you notice
0: it. it. Like, I, I've never been to Ed Roberts, so I'm just, you know, I obviously can't compare, but the Guggenheim is steep. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Same principle.
0: It's a very beautiful building though.
3: Mm -mm.
2: And so in more on like products and uh, digital product side. So the OXO products, which were, are like, it's the consecrated example for good accessible design that benefits all users. Uh, The story of that is that, uh, I don't remember her name, but um, the wife of OXO founder, Had arthritis, and she was like, "Right, if you're going to design this object, you should make sure that it has uh, that it's easy to to hold." And that's kind of like the story behind uh, the kitchen products. More on the digital side, like Apple has generally been considered like very good at accessibility. They've had accessibility options that you can use in the uh, in the iPhone natively without having to add any kind of, of a software uh, for a long time. Uh, there are issues with tools being built in because they are also built in with like the larger population in mind. And sometimes they might be less performant than assistive technologies that are built for uh, disabled people. But usually the iPhone has been really good. And there's the Xbox, Xbox Adaptive Controller by Microsoft as well. Um, so if you don't know that it's a it's an interface between the Xbox and any kind of any kind of switch joystick that you might want to use to play, and it also allows you to have several players playing together to achieve some functions that you wouldn't otherwise be uh, able to play. It does have a, a downside, which is that um, as far as I've, as I've seen so far. Uh, Microsoft hasn't made it as open as it did with previous technologies like Kinect. So you can't easily use the Xbox Adaptive Controller for other purposes than playing the Xbox.
0: Which is, yeah.
2: And it could be really useful for that. It.
0: It's one of those things where, of course, it could be applied in many uh, different situations as a diff- as a product, you know, even just as usage on a computer itself. But obviously that's a limitation. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's an kind of interesting kind of group of examples there, to be honest, because it sort of speaks to how improving accessibility can just improve usability for everyone because I mean I've in my home we've got quite a lot of Oxo products, and none of us living here have arthritis, but there's a lot of them are just so much nicer to use as well and with, with Apple, you know I've, I've always found their interfaces are just really intuitive and I maybe, maybe that does sort of hark back to that mentality a bit.
2: Yeah, so like, OXO uh, definitely is more in the universal design part of design for disability or design for accessibility. Mm. Like, you have other approaches to design. Like, sometimes you do need specialized design. Sometimes you need design for one. You have a different strategy that you can use. In the case of Apple, I think um, so. Apple has always um, has always used their usability as a main selling point, and that's definitely baked into the history of the iPhone. Like specifically, um, Mm. then I'm not so like, I think there's I think it would be wrong to say that it's by default, more usable, it's more usable for certain uses and it's more usable because we've uh, gotten used to it. But as someone who like used uh, Linux for a very long time, I really couldn't use Uh, Mac OS. When I first got it, I was just like, (laughs) "I am going to need a tutorial." Mm. I think one of the things that Apple did really well is that they were the first widely successful product on the smartphone market, and so people did put the time in like getting used to it or like just like trying and failing and trying again and um, worked for them. Mm. Um, I think again, it's like someone who comes from a different tradition of inter- interaction doesn't necessarily find it easy. Like I, I watched, um, uh, my Godson was like four, uh, drawing on my iPad and he, he kept just doing stuff that I had no idea what my iPad could do because he was just putting <laughs> all of his finger at, on the iPad at once and he triggered tons of movements that I just had no idea where, how you did thing. Um.
0: I always find that um, amazing, just like the the amount of features that, you know, very kind of simple products, I suppose, that we use that we, and this this can be true for tech, but this can also be true for something as simple as a kitchen implement, where you've only used it the way you know, and the way your parents knew and whatever. And then there's suddenly a completely, there's, you know, people will call it a life hack. But really, it's just like something that was designed from the start to be there.
1: Mm. Yeah, for sure. I guess with Apple as well, they've almost created their As you said, they started off as the first major smartphone and they've almost created their own ecosystem of where they use like similar gestures across their iPhone, Macs and their other products. But it is almost like a kind of a closed system, isn't it? Where you if you're an Apple user, you might learn how to use all their products quite, quite quickly. But trying to get into that sphere in the first place now is quite difficult because it's grown so much since it started, I guess.
2: Yeah, Apple has a massive advantage uh, on the concurrent that Azure has its downsides. Accessibility is always about like nuances and balance <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, because Apple has these um, inter- like human uh, interaction uh, guidelines that you have to follow if you want your app to be accepted on the store. So you can't just make an app and make it available you have to follow these guidelines and they're actually going to test whether you follow these guidelines and if you don't like if they think you don't um if you're not using the right gesture they're going to reject your app until you implemented it the issue with android obviously is that it's an open ecosystem, system so anyone can do anything um and uh google does have some like uh, design guidelines as well like the the paper you know they they kind of like grand uh the paper system um but they're not they're not enforcing it, and thankfully they're not enforcing it because like obviously apple being a locked ecosystem also like prevent um well we'll see what the, the outcome of the apple v epic case is but likely Mm. it also prevents like concurrence that would be beneficial to users
0: yeah it'll be very interesting to see actually the result of that because obviously um i've followed that case quite closely and i think it's safe to say that epics intentions going in are very uh, shady at best but the outcome could be very beneficial to individuals in terms of kind of the accessibility of things and you know being able to pretty freely have control of a device that you own
2: yeah, I I mean we'll see. It's it's uh it's been a very long battle for interoperability. Like no, um so the very beginning of Microsoft is the antitrust um suit against IBM. Yes. Like IBM owned the machine, they and they did all the software and then they had to open the ecosystem and that's where Microsoft come in. Um Google comes from like, Google survived likely because of the antitrust suit against um, Microsoft, who was trying to just um, kill the competition. So yeah, I don't know. um, um, I'm not sure whether that case um, will, like will be won by Epic. But sure, it's going to be interesting because we're basically still fighting the same battle that we, were, that we were fighting 30 years ago to make sure that people have control of the, device that, the devices that they own.
1: The Epic case, that was the one that started with the whole Fortnite V-Bucks thing on a- Apple's store, wasn't it? And then Apple just removed yeah, Fortnite so Epic, from there.
0: Uh, they, they basically snuck a um, change into the app without the review, so they bypassed the review system. Okay. Um, Apple blocked the update when they found out, and Epic within an hour had filed a lawsuit, so it was clearly something that they'd planned to mm. essentially trigger something that they could file a lawsuit, and it went along with an entire marketing campaign uh so i I've been very skeptical about the whole thing from the start, basically because they're a company that does the same, if not worse, on their own markets, so People who publish games on their stores, people who use their game engines are subject to higher cuts of profit and more stringent, more difficult regulations. And I think they kind of, they turn to Apple very much saying like, this is something that you're doing that we don't like, which is fair enough, but also it's the same issue that everyone does. Google, Nintendo, Microsoft, Sony, they all do it. So I guess I'm interested to see if the, the outcome will probably not be in Epic's favor because of the, well, they don't really have a case, but I'm, I'm hoping that it comes with a shift in how people perceive the kind of web markets, because you should be able to freely download things from where you want them, but at the same time, a platform should be able to ensure some level of security. So mm. where the line gets drawn, I don't really know. I think it's like video game consoles are all incredibly locked down and that's a problem but it's also a video game console, whereas a phone is obviously a device that does half a million things, so arguably should be more open.
1: Yeah. No, I think it'll be an interesting. But I think we could
0: do an entire awesome. episode on the case as of itself.
1: So. No, we could actually.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's not just security, right? It's accessibility. Yeah, like of course. The locked ecosystem of, of Apple, and that's what we were starting the discussion in the first place, um, those allow them to make sure that their product is more accessible. Um, Android, you have more freedom, and it's going to be better for like for some people who can install whatever they, they want. But it actually comes with the basics might not be as accessible as Apple. Yeah, so it's, uh, ab-
0: absolutely. And I think if you know there there are many people who <laughs> the the accessibility is important to them, but there are obviously the downsides of then there might be some third party accessibility tools that are less effective because of things that they may have to comply with or essentially limit themselves in order to be let you know to follow the rules and make them less
3: effective
2: so i think it's mostly um it goes back to the cost of being on these platforms as well like you can put something on the app store the android app store for free if you have to go through apple that's just not the case So your ability to innovate in that area might be stifled by that. Um, Another issue with this Platforms Take All paradigm that we're in is that um, smaller tools can very easily be uh, integrated uh, into bigger ones. So a good example of that is um, uh, Google Maps. Google Maps didn't really have accessibility information until recently, and there's um, recently being like a few years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Time is an abstract thing.
0: Yes, absolutely. Especially now. (laughs)
2: Especially this year. Um, But OpenStreetMap, which is volunteer-run accessibility mapping hackathons and, and whatnot, people were tagging accessibility information that Google can just use. And you have all of these different apps that were built by small teams to make ensure that you uh, have access to restaurants or you know what are the kind of accessibility options at different restaurants or on, I don't know, different subway lines and all that. And they do the work of gathering the data, building community. And Google can just come in, take all the data, put it on their homepage, and the app dies. And with the app, which dies, um, the community of volunteers has to die. Like at some point, we're not going to be able to continue doing that. If it's just data, Google can just tear it away from you, and your source of profit just disappears.
0: Mm, yeah, it's definitely not uncommon for you know something that starts as a community project or a kind of small level effort gets quite quickly picked up by a big organization when they realize that. You know it would improve their product and therefore their bottom line so i guess that that ties well into like you know as in terms of accessibility and design and how they link to each other um how, how does the lack of accessibility affect people who wouldn't usually consider themselves to need accessible tools if that makes sense
2: right so in architecture it's very easy so like if you don't have curb cuts, or if you don't have ramps, or if you don't have elevators um, and whatnot, you're going to feel it very quickly.
3: <laughs> um, mm.
2: We've gotten used to these features in, in our environment and when they're not there, um, it's, it, it does make our lives uh, more complicated. I think a lot of people are using um, accessibility options without necessarily realizing it. Um, so, for instance, people who use uh, subtitles um, for, you know, because we are doing something else at the same time and they want to mm-hmm. follow what's going on in the TV show, read aloud is also is another one. Uh, so I know lots of people who use the uh, read aloud functions, which originates in access options for their books when an audiobook isn't available. Mm-hmm. Um but also things like uh keyboard shortcuts or just like shortcuts for hand gestures. These are not these are for productivity more than necessary accessibility, but they also originate in the um in the needs of people who couldn't use like all the means of interaction uh necessary. For instance, I, I know lots of programmers who use the um, Apple accessibility options so that they don't have to click on the trackpad when they have to drag and drop just, just to win like these a few milliseconds <laughs>
3: that
2: they would otherwise lose if they had to actually click on the trackpad. So yes, I think there's, um, there's there are lots of answers to that from people who are extremely expert at using the phone or computers, and can now like you know use key like shortcuts of all sorts. And I'm also thinking um, voice interaction uh, is another one. So there are lots of things, n- like negative things to be said about voice interaction, including the fact that they <laughs> spy on you all the time.
0: Yeah, you know, I think dictation is another one. That's
2: yeah. So like dictation and like voice recognition, automatic um, automatic subtitles during meeting is one. What well, I found quite interesting, I haven't looked into the origin of that story. Um, but the audio recording in messaging, which has become like very, very uh, popular now, I thought it originated in access options. And actually, it might be because, um, in Asian markets, especially in China, people were using, um, recordings a lot more mm. because it's so much more complicated to type. Um, in non-European languages, just because of the sheer number of uh, of characters.
0: Yeah, it's actually very interesting. If you've ever seen someone type on a Chinese keyboard, it's so different to how we message. Um, that like I I I saw a video of someone typing in Mandarin, and I, it's just it's an entirely different keyboard setup, which makes me think like okay, on phones it's probably not that difficult, but when it comes to a laptop where you have a QWERTY keyboard, like how do you even start?
2: I used to learn Japanese, and I had to. I was homeschooled, so I had um, I had to do my all of my own work on a computer, which was back in two thousand four. That was, <laughs> let's just say that the digital ecosystem was different back then. Oh yeah, um, and that was a whole that was a whole thing configuring a keyboard so that you could type Japanese. So yeah, I totally can imagine that these are contexts in which uh, audio recordings are better and kind of intersect with, um, accessibility needs.
1: Sort of leading in, into that direction. You talked about volunteers earlier, a little bit, we've talked about a lot about how designers can help, but a lot of, a lot of the world isn't designers. Um, so is, is there like little things that people can do in day-to-day life that can improve accessibility for society? that without being a designer themselves?
2: Uh, I'd say like not being dicks to people, to disabled people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Um, but like in truth, you wouldn't think that's the case because, um, like we wouldn't be nasty to disabled people, but there's actually like disabled people actually are experiencing a lot of, um, very adversarial reactions. From like mm-hmm. when they use um, priority lines to uh, if they park and they don't appear disabled, or if they use the um, um, like an accessible toilet, when like people think that they're not disabled, and and all that sorts of stuff. And obviously, mental illnesses, um, or like just mental health issues, more generally, like invisible disabilities, are definitely. They're in some way more difficult to live with because they're invisible and, um, and you're not going necessarily to be trusted, um, if you say that you have uh, those disabilities. Um, there are lots of projects around accessibility and making that volunteers are involved in, um, like repairing wheelchairs, like making switches that are less expensive than the commercial ones, just like generally helping people adapting, um, the home. There's also the training of guide dogs. Um, mm. For that is pretty popular. I don't think they need more people. I think a lot mm. of people want to be training guide dogs. Yeah, sounds wonderful. Um, <laughs> and, but obviously all of these are, this is, that is pretty expensive. And unfortunately, that's not often covered by the state. So donating and just like generally supporting um, accessibility norms and um, um, everything that can help accessibility from training guide dogs um, to open design so that we can repair wheelchairs is is something that anyone can do. It's not just designers.
0: Are there, uh, just out of interest, are there issues with right to repair in accessible spaces in terms of like kind of wheelchairs and...
2: Yes, many actually. Um, so a lot of these devices are considered medical devices, uh, which come with very stringent standards, which is fair enough. Um, but the uh, companies are also using that to say that you shouldn't be repairing your wheelchair yourself or not to not even offer the option of repairing it. Um, so you have ways of going around that. So I know there was in, in France, for instance, we had, um, um, a factory which was making replica of the, um of the screws on like some medical device uh that we couldn't use because like a screw had gone like had broken or something um and the spare parts weren't available. Uh but once you do repair those devices most of the time they're not considered uh to be compliant with uh with standards and that's an issue mm-hmm. and for lots of Um, yeah, again, for lots of devices, you just don't have the schematics, which makes it a lot more difficult to repair. And again, that wouldn't be a problem if we were, if we were funding accessibility so that things can be repaired and things can be replaced. But a lot of the time we don't. So people are forced to make their own repairs or go without a functional wheelchair of our equipment. So yeah, open design is a is a huge battle in this area. And companies are protecting the margins because they're appealing to a small market, which I also, which I also understand. But at some point, we're going to have to do better than what we're doing right now.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think I mean, if we've done an episode on right to repair. So if listener out there are interested, we've we've done that we've talked about it. Uh, it's a deep issue, and with every release of every product, there's always a new chapter to that book. Yeah. So I guess to round this out, thank you so much for joining us. Um, would you say you have a favorite fact, or lesson, or advice that you kind of would close out, or want people to really kind of understand?
2: So what, what I really like uh, to teach as when I teach design disability is just like showing disability standards in architecture, and it's always around like wheelchair users. Uh, and I always like, ask, I always ask like, what's missing in this picture? Like, what are we missing when we just follow, uh, when we just follow the standards and just have students like think about how of their own experiences with inaccessibility or something that someone they know have faced and to, to kind of drive upon that. Accessibility standards are where you begin, but it's not where you end. Like you have to mm. design with uh, with disabled people. You have to take into account the wide range of experiences um, that human beings um, are facing. Yeah. So I think that's, that's always fun.
3: Mm,
0: absolutely. I, I, I agree with that. So, well, thank you so much for joining us. Is there anything you'd like to link, shout out, uh, tell the world about?
2: Uh, if you're into hack knitting machines uh, there's the, you can join the AAB community uh, Other than that, um, anyone who is interested in this issue might want to like check out Fixbirds, which is an initiative trying to connect like people with disabilities with um, designers who can help with building like a simple device um, that they might need in their um, in their lives and uh yeah that's about it
1: cool well thank you so much wow that we've talked talked about a lot of stuff so it's been really 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 fascinating thank you very much for joining us thank you for inviting me thank you so make sure to subscribe to the podcast on
0: apple Podcasts or spotify so that you never miss an episode if you've enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends family co-workers and your seal um unlike videos and vlogs podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations and we rely entirely on your word of mouth as our listeners
1: yes we do indeed so follow us on instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our own work including behind the scenes outtakes projects and updates yep check out things that Emmeline has mentioned
0: check out uh, her research as well and what's more remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends family co-workers and seal we'll see you in two weeks possibly or maybe not this could be the last episode of the season
1: <laughs> well um, that's a cliffhanger to end it on It is a cliffhanger uh, we will see you soon with our next episode thank you so much for listening thanks for listening Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoyles and George Wyeth and edited by George Wyeth music is by Mikey Birtwistle this is a 7.6 podcasting production